This is Caregiver's Compass, an uplifting podcast all about the ins and outs of caregiving for a loved one. Tips, tricks, true stories, and experts. It's all here on Caregiver's Compass. Hello and welcome to another episode of Caregiver's Compass. I'm your host, Stephanie Muscat, registered social worker and psychotherapist. Please note that this episode is not the act of psychotherapy. So today on the podcast, we have Lisa Feldstein. Lisa Feldstein is a lawyer that actually I found out, I think I went to school with her sister. We could talk a little bit about that soon. Um, She practices in mental health law, guardianship law, privacy law, elder law, and other health matters. And Lisa opened her private practice in 2013, where she provides advice to family members in their role as caregivers, attorneys, guardians, substitute decision makers, and advocates, and represents family members before the Consent and Capacity Board. She routinely assists clients to navigate challenging ethical situations involving consent, capacity, and substitute decision-making. Lisa, I'm so happy to have you here. The topics that you could probably talk about for hours on end are very common ones that I see, and it really helps to have such an experienced, knowledgeable lawyer such as yourself on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It really is my pleasure to talk about these topics. And you're right, they are very complicated. (laughs) They definitely are. And I'm sure we're just going to touch on the surface of this today. But I just want to let everybody know how we got connected because it's funny. So I recognized you on Instagram. I think we somehow saw each other. um, And you told me that your sister went to university with me right? You have a twin sister? Yes, my my twin sister. So you probably didn't recognize me. You probably recognized her in me. Yeah, exactly. So that's really funny. So I reached out to Lisa and I said, I think you went to school with me. And she told me it was her twin sister. So we connected and we work in similar fields, obviously in very different roles, but very overlapping roles. So Lisa, I just want to get right down to it. There's something that really comes up all the time with my patients in the hospital and their family members, and it's the topic of capacity. And what happens a lot is that our main physician will deem somebody incapable of making medical decisions and family members will call me and say, I don't know what this means. What does it mean for someone to be incapable of making decisions and what do I do? So I really wanted to start off there because it's so common and it's really just entering the topic of what we're going to talk about today. So would you be able to speak a little bit to that? Sure. And we'll use the word capacity because that's the language in Ontario. But if people are listening from other jurisdictions, it might be that the word confidence is used in other parts of the world and often they mean very similar things. So we'll talk right now also for clarity about capacity to make treatment decisions, because that's how you set up the question. So I'll just flag, there's actually many types of capacity, which we may or may not get into today. So just to narrow that to capacity to make treatment decisions, because there's all different types. And with each type comes different laws about who decides and what's the test. And this is where it gets very complicated with capacity. We always have to be specific so that we're accurate. So capacity to make treatment decisions. It comes from the Healthcare Consent Act, Section 4, for anyone who likes to look up the laws. And it's a very minimalistic kind of wording in the law, actually. It doesn't say that much because the way it's worded in the law 
is so that it's flexible for all kinds of situations. So the word capacity, when what we really mean is it's a two-part test in the Healthcare Consent Act. It's a two-part test that's applied, and then it's just applied based on whatever the circumstances are. So it's the exact same test if we're talking about withdrawing life support as we are accepting a vaccine. So the test for capacity, the first part is asking whether the patient has the ability to understand the information relevant to making a decision. So do they actually intellectually kind of grasp the informed consent elements? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the side effects? All of that. And then the second part is applying that information to oneself. So does the patient have the ability to appreciate the reasonably foreseeable consequences of a decision or lack of a decision if they don't decide at all? And if they fail one part, they fail the entire test and then they're considered incapable of making that particular decision. Okay. So in general terms, if <laughs> and that's, that's an amazing summary. If someone is, is being told in the hospital, your loved one does not have the capacity to make treatment decisions, pretty much they don't have the ability to understand and appreciate what it may entail to make specific decisions. And therefore somebody may have to make those decisions on their behalf. Yeah, so that's sort of the legal kind of answer, which is accuracy makes sense to address, but practically speaking, it means somebody loses the right to make their own treatment decision, at least that specific treatment decision, because with capacity, this is where the law also gets complicated. It's not all or none. Somebody might be capable of some decisions and actually lack capacity to make other decisions, which I see all the time when it comes to mental illness, because with some mental illnesses, people um, with certain conditions are not aware that they are ill but they have a complete understanding when it comes to taking antibiotics for strep throat and they are capable. So it depends on the decision, but yes, if they're found incapable, they lose that right to make that decision for themselves and a substitute decision maker would be asked to decide for them. And just to clarify, because you're talking about how there's different types of capacity. I know here in Ontario and specifically in the hospital, there are different ways to determine capacity. And it's also, it's not a global capacity, meaning it's not a capacity for everything. And also it's one point in time, which I think people don't always understand, but also there's different ways that we can assess capacity for different things. And I think that's what people really need to know is that it all differs and it's not global capacity. Now, when you're talking about a substitute decision maker, if you have a caregiver, for example, who is caring for a loved one in the hospital, let's say it's somebody's niece and they're caring for their aunt all the time, are they going to automatically be called to be the substitute decision maker or how does that work exactly? So not necessarily the caregiver is not always the decision maker. So this is where the law fills in the gaps for us because we actually all have a substitute decision maker, whether we know it or not, whether we've taken any active step in selecting or not. So the Healthcare Consent Act, again, is the main law here, and it sets out this list. We often refer to it as a hierarchy because although it is a list, it's quite important, the order it goes from top to bottom. And I can run through it if you'd like, but it, it sets out who is the decision maker. And so a healthcare professional can go through that list and ask, does this person have a guardian? that was appointed by a court? Do they have a power of attorney for personal care? Do they have a spouse? And so forth and go down this list. And at the end of the list, at the bottom, it's you know their siblings and then it's any other relative. And eventually it's the government, the Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee. So if somebody has no family whatsoever, the government would step in. So we all have a decision maker, which may or may not align with the caregiver. And that's something caregivers can think about and in discussion with patients, particularly if the patients are able to do so is who would that decision maker be if someone loses their capacity and are they happy with that 
default decision maker because otherwise maybe they want to take some active steps to change who that would be. And when drafting these documents, I know a lot of people will come to me with what they call a living will. So it'll just be a piece of paper and it will say living will on the top. And the person has written on this living will that they'd like to appoint their sister to be their power of attorney. And it's signed by that person. That's not upheld in the hospital. So what would the correct way of doing this be? And I guess this is where you would come in. One of the ways you would come in. What do they do in this case? What is really going to be upheld in the hospital and seen as legal? Sure. And sometimes there is no document needed. So if somebody is a parent of a child, you go down that list in the Healthcare Consent Act, it's the parent. What I have often found is parents who are taking care of children who are adults. So maybe an adult, like a 19-year-old with some sort of disability, cognitive impairment, and they are the decision maker, they get questions. They are asked, where is that piece of paper? And there is no piece of paper. So sometimes I write a letter that I should never even be needed. I shouldn't have to write this for people. It should just be you know, better understood, but it's not. So often I, I write letters explaining, this is my client. This is where they fall in that hierarchy. They are the substitute decision maker. My letter constitutes the piece of paper, but it really shouldn't be needed. So where in some cases there is no piece of paper. And in fact, I made a little app for free so that people can go in and uh, specifically, I made it focusing on parents who have children with developmental disabilities because capacity is less likely to fluctuate, whereas where it fluctuates, it gets a little trickier, where they can fill in certain information and generate a letter for themselves. Not on my letterhead, but I hope it helps some people. So anybody who wants that, I can send you a link if you want to share that. But for the piece of paper, people want to take that step. A power of attorney for personal care is the main document that would be created. And if somebody wants to write it themselves, they can. It's not legally required that they go to a lawyer. But it is important to know there's certain things that are necessary to make it legally binding. So signing it is a good step. It also needs to be witnessed by two people. Certain people can't be the witness. So for example, the person who's being appointed to act as the decision maker can't be a witness. So if somebody does go to those efforts and, and does so incorrectly, it wouldn't be legally a valid power of attorney for personal care. If they do expand on their wishes, though, their wishes could potentially bind whoever their decision maker is because we do have this concept of prior capable wishes and whoever is the decision maker it has principles. And we can go into more detail if you'd like, but there's principles that guide how they make decisions. And the first principle is what did this person, what was their prior capable wish when they were 16 or older and they were capable? What did they say they wanted? Did they make a clear wish? So if somebody makes a living will, that substitute decision maker would take a good hard look at that and have to determine if that binds them and if that is how they have to go ahead and make their decision following that wish. That is really helpful. Something that I actually really don't know that I want to ask you is, so we do have those power of attorney kits in Ontario. I'm sure a lot of people don't know about this, but um, I print a lot of these kits for my patients in the hospital. And as you said, there are four pages to complete. They need two uh, independent witnesses. Let's say that this person, this patient, we'll call her Sylvia, is traveling in another province like British Columbia, but she has her documents. Is that seen as valid there, even though the kit was made in Ontario? So it totally depends on the jurisdiction. Every jurisdiction has its own laws. So some will say things basically, we recognize these documents from other places. Others say we will recognize it as long as it abides by whatever our rules are. You need two signatures or two witnesses. So compliant with our rules anyway, we'll recognize it. Other jurisdictions may not recognize it at all. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things where it completely depends where the patient is at the time. Interesting. And if you make a power of attorney document for personal care with a lawyer, 
in one country that may not be seen as legal in another country? Yes, it depends. Oh. It depends on the country. So if somebody is going to you know travel over the winter, for example, for an extended period of time, it's not a bad idea to do a little bit of research. And some of this information is common enough that can be found in a law firm blog, that kind of thing. But just to find out who would be at my decision maker be here? Do I need a different document? Because it's not guaranteed that the POAs in Ontario would be upheld in another jurisdiction. Okay. That's really, that's really helpful to know. I haven't actually had a case like that yet, but it is really, really important to know for me as well. Now, what people often also don't know is that if someone has drafted a power of attorney document for personal care, that does trump the substitute decision maker hierarchy in terms of next of kin, correct? Yes. Whoever's appointed, assuming it's a valid document signed properly, signed by somebody who has the capacity to do so, if we assume all of that, it ranks second highest on the list. The only way to outrank power of attorney is court-appointed guardian, which is very difficult to get if there's already a valid power of attorney in place, unless you, you know, somebody proves the attorney is neglecting their duties or abusing somebody. I mean, in extreme cases, perhaps, but otherwise people's autonomy is respected in our law. And that's one way we respect autonomy is respecting the selection. Unfortunately, in a very practical sense, it gets very messy and very confusing. Are these documents actually valid? Was a person capable? So it is wonderful that the government has made these free kits. And in many cases, they're very useful. Other times, it becomes a real problem when a person with dementia signed it, and now the circumstances around it are unclear. There was no lawyer. There was no medical record at the time to kind of indicate whether the person really was capable. There's a new POA that pops up a month later, appointing another sibling and another one at a bank, and it just creates a nightmare of a situation. And then to make matters worse, there is no power of attorney registry. So these are not stored anywhere. So Often it's siblings with an older parent who are fighting over which one is valid. And it just becomes a very complicated mess that makes family dynamics dysfunctional and creates a lot of animosity within families. And it's very, very problematic. So they're both wonderful and quite problematic at the same time, depending on how they are used and when they are used. Definitely. And that I can definitely see how that would cause a lot of issues. If somebody wants to try and make sure that those types of issues don't arise, even if they do meet with a lawyer and create multiple powers of attorney. I have seen people come in with powers of attorney that were from 1975, and we don't know, obviously, if there's something more recent. So what can people do to communicate with their loved ones and really just make sure that the most recent power of attorney document is being brought forth and, well, we hope, and is being used, especially in a hospital situation. I have lots to say about that. Actually, a few years ago, I had a summer student and we looked into what would be involved with creating a power of attorney registry. We looked at what the other jurisdictions are doing and I eventually reached the conclusion I would have to leave my law practice, find a tech co-founder, and it would be a full-time job. So I'm hoping that there will eventually be a POA registry, at least an optional one that people could choose to register. But of course, there's still those questions of, is it valid? Was the person capable? It's not easy, but it would be incredibly helpful because there is a registry for guardians. You can call and say to so-and-so have a guardian and find that out. But one of the simplest ways is just sharing a copy, not keeping it a secret because feelings might get hurt. If someone does it, you've got three kids, send a copy to all three kids. They know if they're going to have a problem with it, get it out in the open when the patient or resident or whomever made the grant or made the document is able to answer those questions, satisfy the concerns. It's not done with the optics of that sort of shadiness of one person going behind someone's back, which leads to a lot of suspicion. So just simply sharing a copy, it can be shared with a bank if it's 
financial one, it can be shared with a healthcare team. It doesn't mean that it's active right away for healthcare. If someone's capable, they still make their own decisions even after they've signed the QA. I have a power of attorney, but my husband is not making my decisions as I am currently capable. But that document can be shared and often that can help prevent some of these issues because it is um, floating around in enough people's hands that hopefully it will see the light of day when it needs to be actually relied upon. And power of attorney for personal care does touch upon medical decisions and also decisions relating to discharge or nursing home if that person is found incapable of making decisions related to nursing home, correct? So it actually covers six different categories of personal care. It's healthcare, nutrition, hygiene, shelter, safety, and clothing. So healthcare covers all of that. But interestingly, a substitute decision maker has a fair bit of authority anyways, even without the power of attorney. For personal care substitute decision maker, that default position we talked about, they have decision making over not only treatment, but also personal assistance services and getting to consent to long-term care if the person lacks capacity. So they do actually already have that authority to make long-term care related decisions without the power of attorney. Very, very good to know. So if people don't draft a power of attorney document and they've suddenly had a diagnosis of a memory difficulty or a neurodegenerative disease, really it's important to know that not all is lost if they're not able to create these documents, correct? Just that they need to know there is a hierarchy involved with that, with the decisions. Sometimes it's not a problem. The default person is fine. The decisions are fine. Sometimes it's not actually even necessary. It might be nice to have, especially to articulate wishes. So mine, I, for example, so I said, I appointed my husband, he was already my default decision maker, but why did I make a power of attorney for personal care? It was because I went into about five pages of detail of all of my wishes so that there's that paper trail for him to follow, to give him guidance. So he's not guessing. And in case he were ever questioned about my wishes, he can show that document. And so it helps increase the chance of my direction actually being followed. So that's why it's actually the property side. That's far more important. I would say between the two, because for property caregivers, or end up reaching into their own pocket sometimes because their loved one lacks capacity. And the situation is that they're in limbo. No one is actually able to manage the property legally. There is no default. Being a spouse does not even mean they're a default decision maker for property. So if they have a joint bank account, that could be fine. But if they have a separate bank account, bills in their own name, sometimes if a person lacks capacity, there's literally nobody that is legally authorized to manage their financial affairs. And that can be quite a problem. Yes, definitely. And I've seen that also a lot. There's a whole process that we have to go through when there is nobody appointed as a power of attorney for property. It can be very complicated, especially when there are expenses in place and when different things need to be set up. For example, if someone wants to go to a retirement home, they want their loved one to go to the retirement home. There are funds in place, but no one can access those funds. So definitely it becomes a very complicated situation with many, many steps involved. Um, Something I really, really wanted to touch on, which I see a lot as well, which I think you'd be excellent to speak to about this is let's say someone doesn't have a power of attorney document drafted and they have a substitute decision maker who are their children. There's two sisters who are equal in the substitute decision maker hierarchy, but those sisters are not agreeing at all in terms of what they want for their loved one. What happens when there is a complete disagreement, but both people are on the same level as the hierarchy? So if they're both the same level and there's no power of attorney for personal care, it can actually play out in a few different ways. One is if they're at a complete impasse, some member of the healthcare team might contact the Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee, and they are called in to be a tiebreaker. 
So generally families don't want government, you know, faceless person or entity to step in. So that might motivate them. But otherwise, truly the PGT will make decisions if need be, or it can be a battle to outrank on the hierarchy. So above wherever they fall in that hierarchy, there's other levels. So the top of that hierarchy is guardian of the person. So one of those sisters might go to court to seek guardianship, although that takes months and the decision might be needed before that time. Or if the patient is capable, which probably wouldn't be the case if they're being, making treatment decisions, but in theory, there's different types of capacity. So theoretically, if the patient can make a POA for personal care and decide to choose one or come up with a mechanism for tie-breaking, there's also a third rung on this list that is, does not come up all that often, but it's a person who is a proposed representative appointed by the Consent and Capacity Board. So somebody could bring a Form C application. I've been involved in a number of those, but they don't happen very often. It's very little, you know, little known section, but they could be applied to be appointed and they would have a hearing before this tribunal. They, it would be basically like a mini lawsuit. And at the end of the day, one sibling could be successful over the other one and become the decision maker for all medical decisions or a certain subset of medical decisions. Yes. And I've been to one of those as a representative from the hospital, but that was when one of the siblings was actually showing signs of elder abuse, which I know is something you deal with as well. And she was actually the power of attorney. And so we had to go to the consent and capacity board to determine whether the other sister could take her place. It was this whole thing, multiple hearings, but you're right. This is really taken very seriously in the hospital system. And you clearly are an incredible resource for this. You clearly are extremely knowledgeable. Lisa, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to find out more, where can they find you? Well, our website is www.familyhealthlaw.ca. We also have a different website, kinkeeper.ca, and that is where we post our online courses for those who want a do-it-yourself kind of approach, You know, pay a little bit less and learn at their own speed. We have a course where people can take steps to become guardian of property on their own. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, for, for property only because there is an expedited non-court way to become guardian of property. So when we met, talked about how being the default SD substitute decision maker for healthcare might be enough, if you just need guardian of property, we, we created a do-it-yourself course. So that's at kingkeeper.ca. We also, actually speaking of the consent capacity board, we made a course for family caregivers who are going to the consent capacity board and they don't necessarily need a lawyer, but they're feeling very overwhelmed. They'll be a witness. They don't know what to expect. So we made that course and a mental health law 101 course for family caregivers who are beginning to navigate the mental health system. And what's all of this consent capacity, mental health act forms? What does all of this mean? Involuntary status. So it's a, it's a 101 course for family caregivers trying to get a grasp on the overwhelming mental health system and, and learn a little bit of strategy that helps them be better advocates. That is incredibly useful, especially when caregivers are so overwhelmed as it is, and they're trying to grapple with their own emotions, let alone deal with the legal system. I think those courses are genius. You're really paving the way. Like I'm very, very impressed. I could speak to you for three hours about this really, because there's so much to talk about. I might have to have you come back in a couple months because there's so much to talk about here. We've really only hit the surface. But thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm going to put everything in the show notes about you, about the courses. Are the courses only applicable to someone living in Ontario or can, can anybody access them? How, how does that work? Anybody can access them, but they would be a lot less useful for somebody outside of Ontario because they are specific to our system here and our laws here. Okay, great. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. That was so, so helpful and so useful. And I hope it, it really helped uh, some people out there listening and yeah, that was wonderful. So have a, a great day and we'll have to have you back on. I would love to come back. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Caregiver's Compass. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. I'm Stephanie Muscat. Have an uplifting day and I'll see you next time.